My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Today, I'm happy to announce we have a sponsor, which is McMillan LLP, a Canadian leading business law firm with an international presence and client base. The firm has offices in Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Ottawa, Montreal, and Hong Kong, and specializes in business law, capital markets and securities regulation, mergers and acquisitions, natural resource law, and many other things. I would like in particular to thank our legal counsel, Roland Hurst, who is a leading capital markets, M&A, and mining lawyer at the law firm of Macmillan based here in Vancouver. Roland acts as a trusted advisor to mining companies, entrepreneurs, and financiers, assisting them with their domestic and international mining projects. Roland's done a lot of work for Resource Insider. We've been very happy with the things that he's done and Macmillan in general. So we're very proud to have them as a sponsor here at Resource Insider today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider podcast. Again, I'm your host, Jamie Keach. And today I got to sit down with a very interesting guest named Donald Bray. Now, Donald comes from an extremely different background than the typical guest we have on here. So unlike a mining CEO or unlike a professional investor that has spent their entire career focused on and immersed in this industry, Donald comes from something very different. He is a Cambridge-trained political anthropologist. Um, And if you're like me, you probably didn't know much about that uh, until today, but that's about to change. Because in this conversation, we get into what led Donald into a career in anthropology. Uh, Skipping ahead, that is, it is a year spent in the Canadian Arctic digging ditches. So we'll get into that in more detail. Um, And how he ended up in the mining industry. But before that, we talk about the 10 years Donald spent working in conflict and war zones. Particularly on the ground in Afghanistan working with troops to, you know, as they say, win over the hearts and minds of the local population. So Donald did a lot of interesting things. He spent most of his time, you know, on the ground in various remote parts of the country. He built a local team uh, that he worked closely with communities to build a picture of really how things operate at the ground level in Afghanistan and how troops and military leaders can better engage with people. Now, a lot of you listening right now are going to immediately see the implications this might have for the mining industry, and that's exactly what Donald did. After working in Afghanistan, he started his own consulting group, Chalkstone Partners, that consulted doing similar work to mining and natural resources companies. Uh, The first client he had was a company called Gemfields in Colombia, which at the time had one of the longest-running conflicts in human history. Uh, Donald worked on the ground, built a team, and really helped uh, the company understand the challenges they were facing and build a plan to how they could address those challenges. After that, he's been working on a project in Kenya to similar success for an oil and gas company that we get into more detail on in this conversation. What I really liked about talking to Donald 
and this is probably the engineer in me, is that you know this is a part of the industry that is often extremely difficult to quantify. Uh, it's very soft, and it's hard to know whether you're succeeding or whether you're failing until it's too late. And what Donald has done is he has built a system that go that applies big data techniques and goes a long way to putting hard numbers um, behind progress so a company can really understand where they are with respect to both identifying and addressing problems when it comes to political risk, social risk, uh, working with communities, and working with governments. I would say this podcast is absolutely mandatory listening for anyone that's ever run a mining or natural resources company or anyone that ever wants to. I would also say this podcast, we really get into a lot of issues that investors should be considering, and more importantly, making sure the management teams of companies that they plan to invest in are considering. You know, more often than not today, when a mining project gets derailed, it's because of these social, uh, soft, above-ground risks. And going forward in the future, it's going to be something that companies have to address uh, in ever greater detail. So, without further ado, let me please introduce Donald Bray, CEO of Chalkstone Partners. Donald, welcome to the podcast today. Jamie, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. So, I know you're a very busy guy uh, these days. You're back and forth between your office, or rather your offices in England. Uh, you live in France, and you're doing much of your work in Africa these days. So I appreciate you <laughs> fitting us in between a very hectic travel schedule and often spotty internet, I would guess. <laughs> spotty internet is the bane of my existence. <laughs> so where are you right now so, uh, so our listeners can place that? I'm sitting here in Vancouver, but where are you? I am uh, in my in in you know it's it's uh, you know seven o'clock in the evening, so I'm now at home in in, uh, in in our house just outside of Paris. Good, and you're just back from a trip somewhere on a project. Is that correct? That's that's right. I um, just got back last week. We were working on a beautiful project for a great uh, a great client, resource client, uh, London listed um, oil company, and we were working in Kenya. And it went and we just launched our we just launched our platform. I'll tell you about it later when if, if you like. But it was uh, it was a great launch, and we had a great experience. So very happy with it. I really want to dig into that um, and your. You know the, the things you've been working on, particularly the, the platform you referenced. But I do think we need to take a step back because you are a very different guest than the ones we typically have here on this podcast. I mean, normally we have resource investors or CEOs of mining and exploration companies, but you are a political anthropologist. And I would guess about 30% of our listeners know exactly what that is. So... Could you start by giving us an overview of what that actually means and, and what that entails? So anthropology is a study of, of people, of humans, of human beings and human behavior. Um, and it differs from other disciplines, for example, like sociology, in that we're looking at uh, societies um, other than our own. Mm -hmm. um, and the political element comes into looking how um, you know, these societies govern themselves, how um, rules are made and how um, you know, decisions are taken and, of course, um, by whom. 
the systems, the electoral systems, the power structures that govern yes. uh, that govern societies. So I presume this can be applied to you know any level of system, any level of government, from you know the local community level right up to federal politics in the U.S. or the U.K. or what have you. But you apply it in a very unusual way, or at least unusual to most people listening. You're particularly focused on conflict zones. Is that right? That's right. So I, as a political anthropologist, I decided to um, you know, specialize in conflict. Conflict um, was something that uh, it's inherent, I suppose. Some people would say it's inherent in human nature. For me, it was, it was a fascinating area of study. Um, and you know, over the course of my career, I've had the opportunity to, um, you know, to, to, to study and, and work in, in, in a couple of different conflict zones, most recently Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and uh, you know, a couple of places in Africa, and some recent other other, other places as well. So it's been for me, the, you know, how people make decisions in, you know, under the stress of conflict, and and how they, of course, how they resolved conflict. These are these are political processes. So how much? So when you were in these places, were you actually stationed in in Afghanistan and Iraq in Iraq, working with with militaries there and working with the troops? How did how did that look? Yeah, so, um, gosh, I spent six years in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is, is, was my biggest uh, sort of conflict experience in terms of time, and I suppose maybe the biggest experience for me in terms of, you know, the personal impact um, but the, um, and the personal learning experience from, from, from being there. But that was, I was stationed uh, at different, at, in different places at different times, so I was in Helmand, um, working with the British government. Um, uh, I was in, uh, spent some time in Kandahar, I spent some time in Kabul, as well as in eastern Afghanistan, um, you know, closer to the Pakistan border as well. So what was your, your typical mandate there? I mean, does every, uh, does every military unit have a, have a cultural anthropologist running around with them out in the field? Or <laughs> no, how, did, yeah. how did your role fit in there? So basically, uh, it was it was a bit of a new idea. Um, uh, of course, at that time, the conflicts that uh, were being pursued were uh, counterinsurgencies, um, and you know, in, within that within the context of the conflict, um, you know, the drive was to understand the population. You would have heard about it, and your audience would have heard about it in terms of hearts and minds. Well, mm-hmm. in terms of how one how one actually goes about the business of winning over hearts and minds. First, you need to you know, understand what, what goes on in those hearts and minds, um, you know, and how those, you know, how those societies are structured in order to you know, have that um, conversation with them in, in, you know, in, in one sense, to be able to persuade them of the, of the justness or the correctness of your argument. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was my, my function, was to help them, help um, my military colleagues to you know, better understand from a political perspective um, in a very localized local areas, um, you know how decisions were being made locally, by whom, um, how negotiations were um, you know being conducted, and the rules by which those negotiations were being conducted. So we had to understand again the complex the complex systems within which uh, the conflict was being forged. So, what does that actually look like? So you're there. Uh, I assume you've got a small team with you uh, to study these issues. How do you roll out a plan to actually gather information effectively and, and I mean and stay safe and keep the people that are working with you safe? What are the mechanics of that actually look like? So that's a great question. The 
Um, well, you're absolutely right. I had a team um, and I had an awesome team. And none of my work would have been possible without my, um, my local Afghan team. And, and they were amazing. And are these, um, are these Brits or, or Americans or are these uh, Afghani? Uh, no, these are uh, local Afghans who I um, recruited and uh, trained to assist me with uh, data collection. Okay. And then we would, um, um, you know, we would work, uh, you know, to to interpret that uh, data together. Again, the, you know, just to put this into into context for you and, and the audience. The normally an anthropologist would go out into the world, and you know, we, we'd we'd learn the local language and and uh, you know, live in, in in the villages in which we're in which we're researching and. Um, you know, we'd say that a good, a good ethnography, a good piece of research would take, you know, somewhere between, uh, you know, six to 10 months, maybe a year. Um, of course, in a conflict environment, the rules are different and the circumstances are different. We don't have the ability to, you know, simply embed ourselves into a local community um, because there's a war going on. Um, the research that I was conducting on behalf, like, you know, with the, with the military and, and the purpose of that research was to help um, ISAF forces and British forces to make um, better decisions, uh, you know, with respect to, to the pursuit of the conflict. So there was a speed element. We didn't have, you know, t 12 months to finish an ethnography. So one was overcoming, um, was, you know, solving the access issue. And the second issue was, of course, solving the time issue. So that, you know, in order to solve those issues, um, you know, I resolved to work with a local team. And again, I spent a lot of time working with that local team. And then from time to time, I would also go in with them. Um, so I, I lived as close as I could, um, uh, still within, you know, as a, within the mandate, I was under the UK's uh, government's duty of care. So I was still on a, on, um, you know, a military base, a forward operating base. And at some yeah. points, a patrol base, um, you know, living and working with military colleagues in that environment, but then my Afghan colleagues. So I would be as close as I can and living as close as I can to, to, to the local villages. But, and then I'd have, I'd go out to meet the team and the team would sometimes come in to meet me. And, uh, you know, we'd work, you know, we'd figure out the best we can on a day-to-day -day basis where, where it was possible to work and collaborate together to, you know, to, to, to do the research. And how did you, how did you select these team members? Now, Presumably, these are people that need to be able to go out into the villages and the countryside and the towns, et cetera, you know, build relationships with people, earn their trust, do all these, do all these things. How are you, and I'm, I'm just trying to think of this from a conflict perspective, how do you find the people that can you know, navigate the various sides of a conflict uh, without you know, putting themselves or the people they're talking to in danger, uh, can move effectively through that space? It must, I mean, it must be a unique set of skills, I would guess. So I think you're right. The, um, I think for me, the, there's a couple of primary uh, qualifications that I used to you know, sort of adhere to rigidly with, with respect to recruiting the field team. And the first was that they would be locally resident. Um, yep. So they are, they know as local residents, they are, um, and, and local to the, you know, to the specific village or area that we're, we're working in. So, you know, for example, some, we, you know, just because we're working in Afghanistan, we wouldn't bring somebody from Kabul to work in, in southern Afghanistan or in Helmand. We right. would bring somebody from that village to work with us in that village um, and train that person, that person and those people on the team, of course, in, in, in our case, 
being of the village, they knew exactly. You know, they understood. They understood the, the local dynamics and the local situation, you know, to a far greater, far greater degree of nuance than than I ever could or, or catch up to in, in 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 the short period of time that was available. So being able to work with them was a was a, a big part of my challenge. Um, beyond the um, residence requirement, in a sense, was. Um, you know, a basic education requirement. So, mm -hmm. again, you know, we're looking in conflict zones where uh, education has not been a priority for, you know, decades. Um, and, uh, you know, so that was that was a bit of a challenge to overcome. But we found some great people who had, you know, great education. Uh, you know, at some points, uh, one or two of them had uh, tertiary education. They were, you know, living locally, but with, you know, tertiary education. And, yes. you know, if you spend the time and you and 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 and, and find the uh, to spend the time to find the people, you, you you'll find. Them. Did That's people did people want these jobs? I mean, when you kind of, however, the the mechanism with which you did it, but sent out a call for applications. Did you have people lining up trying to work with you, or was it was it hard to convince people to to sort of be your eyes and ears out in the community? Well. Eyes and ears is not so much the, it's not so much eyes and ears. Eyes and ears implies that you're asking people to, you know, go out and, and, and listen and, and, you know, kind of like, you know, sort of hang out and, you know, gather information almost, you know, surreptitiously or clandestinely for you. I mean, like for me, um, you know, the way that, the way that this worked in the, you know, with, with the field team was, was more about them helping, you know, them explaining to me and working with me to to understand their environment right so it wasn't it was them teaching me about where they live okay and as, a, as opposed to them being my eyes and ears was it was it uh were there a lot of people looking for these jobs or were there uh was it hard was it hard to convince people to join to join up with you for this task well, no. I mean, we, I, we never really had that much of a problem. I mean, you know, when you 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 know what it's like, even when you're on holidays. Like, yeah. you know, if you are, you know, if you go up to somebody and you start speaking a little bit, even in their you know broken broken you know local language, but you're expressing a genuine interest as human beings. You know, I, we we understand and we can empathize and we can tell when somebody is being genuine with us, and mm -hmm. and and. You know, we, we we can respond to that. For me, that's always been you know, if you ex, ex, you know display a you know a genuine curiosity about somebody's culture and about where they live and um, you know the circumstances that uh, that surround them. They, you know, people are often very very willing to you know to share their experiences and and to teach you about you know their part of the world. Okay, now. So I'm thinking back to what you said earlier, and you know when you complete complete a ethnography of this, you're trying to. I assume a part of this is trying to understand how the local community or the local culture um, manages conflict situations. You know, manages things like negotiation and coming to agreements and and bargaining and trust. Did you find anything in this experience? And this can be in Afghanistan or Iraq or any other any other place you've worked where the way a local group thinks about these sort of things is very different than the way we would in a, in a typical Western country like Canada or, or the UK. Absolutely. The, um, <laughs> the, the, and it's, it's, I'm, 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 I'm smiling now because it's, uh, you know, genuinely it's a question that 
know, this particular question, like, you know, I, I, I love it. And it, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, specifically, um, you know, these countries, uh, conflict countries or developing countries, countries other than, say, Canada or the United States or, or Europe or the UK, where we have robust and mature uh, political systems um, that are you know, broadly based on the rule of law. And that rule of law is, is agreed and understood and, and adhered to and enforced. Um, of course, in many developing countries, um, you know, the rule of law you know, looks a lot different um, from our rule of law and from how we envisage it, um, primarily because the legal systems and the culture that underpins um, their rules-based systems uh, are, are different from ours. Um, so, you know, in, 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 you know, to give you an example, I mean, you, in Afghanistan, we've got a pluralistic legal system. It is uh, a very rich society. Um, there is a, you know, a form of Napoleonic code. There is a, a constitution. Um, there is also, um, however, Islamic Sharia, because Islam is, is you know, a cultural determinant in that society. And beyond Islamic Sharia is, is uh, you know, the um, Pashtun Wali, or the way of the Pashtuns, the tribal code of the Pashtuns, the Pashtuns being the um, largest ethnic group uh, in, in Afghanistan. So one of the biggest challenges I had actually early on was convincing or just you know, relaying to colleagues that uh, you know, people would often talk about, well, this is informal and this is formal, formal processes referring to a more Western or recognizably Western rules-based system and they, everything else would be informal. And I was like, well, hang on a second. It is formalized because, first of all, it's in the Constitution rule. You know, Article 3 of the Afghan Constitution was, you know, nothing can be contrary to Islamic Sharia. And then within the context of Islamic Sharia is um, a space for um, tribal code. Uh, and that is, that's defined within the, 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 the system of Urf in Islamic Sharia. So, yeah. you know, there is a place for everything that exists in, in pluralistic, in, you know, pluralistic legal systems. Um, and it's about, you know, how do we, how do we reckon with all of these different ways of these different rules, these different customs, how do we apply them? Uh, and in what different situations are these, you know, is, is, you know, are the, are the different rule systems applicable? Did, did every community and every group within Afghanistan apply these in the same way so that there was this from their, uh, you know, the Napoleonic code of the constitution, this part from the Sharia law, this part from the tribal laws, like, or did it, was it interpreted in different ways throughout the country? <laughs> You hit the nail on the head. The Afghanistan, uh, uh, even now, um, Afghanistan, Colombia, but I've worked in both countries, but in Afghanistan, um, one of the longest running civil conflicts, internal conflicts, uh, you know, in the world in history. And so the society of Afghanistan has been, you know, decimated by, you know, decades of, of success, you know, successive decades of conflict. Um, you know, since the Soviet invasions in, in, uh, you know, in the eighties, um, and, um, you know, so things, things, you know, that society has been hampered by the conflict, mm -hmm. um, the ability to pass down, uh, generation to generation, 
father to son, mother to daughter, family, you know, family within families, how, um, you know, how these rules um, affect them and how they're to be, you know, different rules are to be interpreted, whether that's Islamic, um, you know, rules or, uh, you know, or, or Pashtun Wali, you know, of course, with such conflict, you know, people weren't able to sort of pass, pass those rules along and, and, and interpret them in the same way in a, in, in a normalized fashion. So, you know, people did, uh, there was wide interpretation. Short answer is that there was wide interpretation to, to the various rules and they were applied very differently. And of course, that was very, very confusing for the international community and the, um, and the NATO military. Yeah. Now, can you think of a situation, a specific example, where you know there were conflict, um, maybe a conflict in negotiations, for example, between the Western forces and Afghani leaders, be it at the community level or otherwise, where the base of this conflict was just a misunderstanding of of these values and the way they're applying, the way they're applying their worldviews and these and these things we're talking about now, and that it was it was solved with an explanation of of how people are thinking about things. I'm not sure I'm doing a good job explaining that question, but it's a more of a specific example of an understanding of these issues and how an understanding of them was able to help get through problems that were coming up. Okay. Um, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit. No, that's okay. I mean, I, there's a general, there's a general, a, a, a sort of a general context that I can give for that as yeah. opposed to a specific example. It's easier, um, which is, you know, different types of conflicts would be, you know, more readily resolved in different in different communities by different types of rules. So, for example, big criminal type of uh, problems would be, you know, people would be more or less comfortable with the formal legal system. Um, but, um, you know, domestic um, concerns or issues concerning land um, or water, for example, which were big big, uh, big issues. Um, they remain big issues throughout the, uh, developing world, the emerging economies. And, um, there are questions that, uh, resource economy, resource companies have to face almost all the time, mm -hmm. um, with respects to land access and land use and, and that's um, why land ownership. You're right. That's why I'm belaboring this point because that's right. I think so, this is a very common issue in the mining space and, you know, most mining executives are engineers or accountants or lawyers, and they're not necessarily equipped to understand how a local community in Latin America thinks about, uh, you know, water or forestry or, or their land or how indigenous peoples, be it anywhere in the world, sort of approach and value these things. So I think this is a very important thing to discuss and to be thinking about. Well, and... The, to give you, an, I, I couldn't agree more. To give you a, a relatively a recent example um, from uh, my current experience in Kenya, um, you know, working in northern in northern uh, northwestern Kenya, um, with a pastoralist community, so a community that is you know tending their you know predominantly tending their herds, although there is some agriculture that goes on, uh, you know, in terms of economic activity. Um, traditional economic activity, but this this society, the community there, views land ownership very differently. How they view land ownership with respects to traditional ancestral lands or clan lands is that that's that's one that's one set of views. Of course, 
the Kenyan national government has a different set of views for how they and and and, and have articulated a set of laws in terms of and regulations in terms of what they how they define um, you know communal lands as opposed to they don't have a particular definition for ancestral lands or trust lands but they have a definition for communal lands so you've got a you you the resource company in this case is is has a, a ten, there's a tension that exists between what the community believes is is uh, is correct and what the national government has enshrined in in its in its laws and legal system and then of course the company has to deal with both and this is the you know this is the great challenge of the of of the resource company on the one hand we have to be the resource company needs to be you know fully and wholly compliant with national sovereign laws on the other hand they have to deal with the everyday reality of working you know in in communities amartya for me, I think the answer comes from comes from from the top, and that's you know one of the most brilliant legal scholars of of our age, perhaps, was Amartya Sen. Okay. And to, to paraphrase Amartya Sen, you know, he made an observation that what is legitimate is what is what is legitimate in law is what is legitimate in the minds of the people. For us to you know help people uh, you know negotiate terms of access. Um, you know, even though they may have the concession from the from the government, the resource company may have the concession. They still need to to work with what is legitimate in the minds of the people, um, the communities that are resident within the their areas of interest. And this comes down to hearts and minds again. This exactly, and this is where the two meet. The okay. this comes down to being able to understand the rules, understand how those rules are made, understand how those systems are governed, and who is doing the decision making. Okay, so I want to get into in more detail your work uh, specifically in the resource space and how you made that transition from conflict to you know mining and oil and gas. But I would like to take a step back and you know how did you actually end up as an anthropologist? Uh, and I mean the kind of work that you do, um, I didn't even know existed when I was a kid, um, and I think probably a lot of people found themselves in that situation. So. I mean, what brought you to this? Was this a childhood dream? Were, were you, did you study something in university? What was the series of events that led you into this very unique and frankly unusual career? Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a bit of a circuitous story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I did my undergraduate in Scotland at uh, University of St. Andrews and I studied history. Um, but when I finished, I, I had no idea what I really wanted to do. My mother's family is Canadian. So I you know, went from the UK and, uh, and went to spend some time with my grandparents and my, and my family and, um, who were living in, in Ontario, uh, variously in Ontario and in Eastern Canada, a lot of mm -hmm. people out in, out in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. So um, the, you know, I it was, you know, sort of looking at these things um, and think, I was just thinking, you know, what am I supposed to do? Here I was, like, you know, 23, I think, 24 years old. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and then somebody, somebody, I think I was in Halifax, you know, sitting at a beer in Halifax, probably drinking Alexander Keith's beer, India Pale Ale. And somebody was telling me, like, you know, hey, there's some great jobs in, in you know, if you go up into Nunavut, into the Northwest Territories, you can get like, you know, great jobs, so, you know, great hourly wage. 
you know, it's, you know, it's get to sort of like, you know, be outdoors and, you know, have a great experience. I was like, wow, I'm all for that. You know, this, yeah. this could be great. So, so I told my grandmother about this. Of course, she, she, uh, she just basically shook her head and rolled her eyes. It's like, you know, what, what, what is, what kind of plan is this? Yeah. But she, she, you know, she was very supportive. My grand, my grandmother was very, very supportive. Always was. I'm so blessed with that. The, um, so she helped me sort of like, you know, scrape together the, you know, the money I needed for a, for a plane ticket. Of course, the plane ticket, it wasn't the, uh, you know, it was, it was a little bit difficult to sort of, you know, not the cheapest Air travel into Canada, for, no. for those who don't know, isn't exactly the cheapest. It's not like in Europe. And um, I think uh, the non-Canadian listeners, just to put this in perspective, from from where Donald was staying, say in Ontario, this would have been, I think, what it would have been, a six or seven hour flight straight north uh, to the northern eastern part of Canada, which is essentially the Arctic. Um, and, you know, it, houses are built on stilts there. It is never particularly warm. In the winter, it is dark almost all the time. So this is uh, really the edge, <laughs> edge <laughs> really. It, 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 it was, and that's what made it such a fascinating experience. And that's why I could, there was no way I could turn it up, even though I had no clue why I was going or what I wanted to do. Ultimately, I, I, I went out there, I found a job. And, of course, the, the, <laughs> the job, I went up to Baffin Island. The job that I found out on the on the edges in a small town called Cape Dorset, um, which is on the uh, the Fox Peninsula, the Fox Peninsula, it's in the south uh, west corner of Baffin Island, on just below the the Arctic Circle on the sixty second parallel. The um, and it's a beautiful community of about a thousand people, uh, full time residents at that time anyway. And um, I ended up digging digging ditches in the tundra for airport runway lighting. <laughs> that, was, that was my job. So you're basically on the edge of the known world, uh, a Brit who's probably never, never been below 10 degrees Celsius before and or negative 10 degrees Celsius in a place that gets to easily negative 50 in the winter and you're digging ditches in what I assume is permafrost. Exactly. <laughs> And the, you know, so for, for me, like to go from, you know, I was, I was in boarding school in Canterbury, Canterbury was, you know, that was a great, and then to go to university in Scotland and then to you know, have that whole sort of British experience and then to go to basically teleport to another universe in the Arctic. That was, that was just amazing. That so that's was amazing. Quite an adventure for a 20 something year old. And this is a, you know, you said a thousand people and I think, you know, people need to understand this is not a thousand people com- person community with another community 20 miles away. This is a flight in on a <laughs> tiny plane in a largely godforsaken island and in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, you would be, you would be not stranded is the right word, but you are very isolated there. Hugely isolated. And yet um, members of the community are very warm and very welcoming. And, and this is largely an Inuit uh, community, I assume? It was, uh, you know, in, in essence, entirely an in, community yeah so what were the and, what uh, were the experiences there that were sort of formative to this anthropology path well so i you know basically whilst i was there i met a few other um Holonaks. Holonak is the, the inuit the inuit term in in for southerner mm-hmm. and um and they were anthropologists and uh, they, they were, I think they were from, 
I think they're from a, a university where you are. They could have been UBC or or Simon Fraser. No, I think it was maybe UBC. And they were, um, but they were doing their field work in the Arctic. And I started to, you know, spend some time with them, like, you know, in my off time, my off hours from digging ditches. Um, and, I, and I thought, well, here's some, because you know, they, they were students. They were a few years older than me, but they were students. And they were working, doing their doctoral work. And, um, and uh, you know, so I, I was just fascinated by what they were, what they were learning and, and the processes that they were, you know, the, the, you know the experience that they were having and um you know when they left they left me a couple of books to sort of like you know keep me going i didn't of course bring so much reading material with me so <laughs> so the books that they left me were pretty much all i had to read <laughs> so that was it when so basically were- like i don't know how often <laughs> exactly so i mean like you know this was before this was this was a few, this is a few years ago now so this was this was this was before Netflix and iPads, so not that there would have been any signal out there anyway. But the um, so so basically, it's uh, so all I had to read was was a few anthropology books, and uh, and 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 I was hooked. So how long did you actually spend out there in Nunavut? Um, first, my first trip up there was maybe about. Um, seven or eight months eight months maybe mm-hmm. so over the course of the spring i went up in the spring and and uh and in the summer maybe maybe not quite eight months maybe it was closer to six months okay was, but it was it was it was it was wonderful and so that was really so that pushed you in towards anthropology and then you went back to the uk and, and i believe you went to cambridge is that correct that's right so um you know armed with a couple of books uh, you know, I ended up, you know, a few, a few years later. Um, so in between that's when the, so anthropology sort of like, you know, got onto the, on, you know, got onto my radar at that moment. Um, and then a few, you know, a little while after that, uh, I started to work with, uh, you know, do some different stuff, I guess, but I mean, what, uh, you know, the world at that point was changing, um, you know, nine eleven had was 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 you know a few years out from you know the time that I was in the Arctic. So yeah, things were things things were changing. I mean, we had the the in the late nineteen nineties. Of course, we had the conflict in the Balkans. Um, you know, there were conflicts. Uh, you know, conflicts around the place. They were kind of interesting for me. Nine eleven, like a lot of people, I mean, it was a, a changing moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, for me, it was like well. You know, in order to, you know, to understand understand this, we need to, you know, understand the, uh, you know, understand the politics and understand how, you know, understand the local politics. Um, you know, conflict is is uh, war is war is politics by other means. So, um, you know, for me, it was an essential thing. Uh, like I say, I went to to Cambridge, uh, one degree, two degree, three degrees later. And it was, but it was a beautiful, you know, it was, for me, it was a, uh, you know, Cambridge was a wonderful place to sort of be able to come back to, uh, to be able to study, to be able to learn, uh, um, to dive into the discipline, uh, and then, you know, take that back out into the field and, and for research. It's been, you know, it was an amazing thing. So let's talk about the parallels between the challenges faced in conflict zones, be they Iraq or Afghanistan or any of the other places you'd worked, 
and those you see within the natural resource industry, so the mining industry, um, or the oil and gas industry, which you're focused on now. What what kind of similar challenges do you see there? Um, oh, there are so many. There are so so many, um, and I think that's what drew me to um, you know wanting to work with um, you know, resource uh, extractors industry and resource companies in the, in the first place. Um, we touched on a couple of them already. Um, the you know, need to resolve essential conflicts um, for the resource company. These are the same company, you know, same conflicts that you know um, the military would deal with in in, in Afghanistan that uh, yeah. the civilian um, would deal with in, in Afghanistan. The civilian civilian diplomats would deal with in Afghanistan and and the like. Helping people overcome, you know, re, re, you know, understand their governance is. Tr- systems uh, engage in development programming um, and, and designing development interventions um, and of course you know the central central to all of this um, right in the middle isn't about I mean because of course the, the the center of this isn't really about the development intervention or the or the uh, or anything else actually it's it's primarily about resolving you know a, a, essentially a political problem which is how do we how do we resolve this uh, this conflict and over over whatever it is, and it's usually a, a resource of some kind, land, water. Um, you know, these are these are the issues that people would largely have to deal with. Is there you know, is there common things you see resource companies doing wrong or doing poorly that have really been figured out well in the conflict zones? You know, are there things that you know these diplomats or or senior military officials really know how to manage, and you know that mining companies and oil and gas companies could learn a lot from? That's a great question. Um, in some respects, I think that the, the um, resource companies um, are way out in front of governments in terms of their ability to, you know, manage, um, you know, local, you know, local, local conflicts. In other ways, I think that yeah. But in other ways, I think that there's you know there's a lot of other things that that they can really learn from. And and one in particular, I, I see a lot of resource companies doing this is their focus is too narrow. So and by by that I mean the focus is that fence line, um, the fence line to the project. Um, it's just the concession area. By focusing too narrow, what the resource company is missing is that. The social and political system that that concession exists within is much bigger than that than the communities that are are just residing on the fence. And you've got to take all, all of this into account. So, for example, a government in conflict would be looking at not just the village, but the village, you know, within its local social and geographic and political context. And then they'd be looking at the district system, the provincial system of governance, and how this all ties into the national system of governance. Resource companies primarily just tend to look, you know, they'll 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 look at the national level, of course, for for laws and regulations, but really they'll 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 focus their their attentions with respects to you know national benefits, national content, CSR programming, etc., on you know specifically on the on the communities of the fence line, and I think that is a big that's a a, a big problem. I think that's maybe how a lot of pro, pro, um, problems begin. 
because they haven't taken the time to, possibly they haven't taken the time to contextualize those fence line communities in the broader, the broader social system that they, uh, that, that they live within. And that is absolutely essential. So you've gone and you've started a company called Chalkstone Partners Limited. You consult to natural resource companies. Are these some of the issues that you're focused on addressing? What is the, you know, what is the general mandate of, of, your, of your organization? So our, our sort of uh, you know, raison d'etre mission is to help our clients overcome um, non-technical or above-ground risks. Mm-hmm. So these could be anything from, you know, security risks in, in you know, from a, you know, on, on a basic level. We don't provide any security services per se, but they're just like involving stability. Um, but also, um, more generally, things like the reputation risks, um, you know, the, the full spectrum of, of you know, labor risks, administrative risks, um, political risks and social community risks that the company would face um, within, you know, as they as they seek to, um, you know, advance that asset, and that's what we, you know, that's what we focus on as as Chalkstone. That's that is our core mission. Is there anything that you think you're doing differently um, than you would typically see in other? I'll broadly call them CSR consultants or people that deal with the softer. Uh, you know, quote unquote, softer social side of the mining industry, the above ground risks. I think for me, and certainly I am, you know, this is a, it's a great question because how we define this, you know, some people, I'll start, I'll start a conversation and we'll, we'll talk about the risks. Um, Somebody might immediately start thinking, somebody in the room might immediately start thinking, oh, well, this is about security. Um, security is a part of it, but it's not, we don't offer security services per se. Other people, as you just say, may think about it, that it's, uh, as you just said, it's about CSR. Well, CSR, again, is, is something that we can inform, but we're not offering to actually implement a CSR program. Um, what we're looking at here is, is the politics that, that lies at the center of, of all of these, like those, both of those um, ends of the spectrum and, and all the activities in between. So stakeholder engagement, the CSR, the corporate philanthropy, the asset protection, um, the external engagement, all of this comes together. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of it is um, you know, underpinned by the realities of um, you know, the politics that impacts that, uh, you know, that, that area of interest. So you and I started speaking probably getting on two years ago now uh, through first email and then phone calls. And, you know, I reached out to you um, based on my interest originally in a company called Gemfields, which was a a gem miner and explorer all around the world. Mm -hmm. But one of their major projects was in Colombia. And, you know, Columbia is very well known for emeralds. It's one of the, one of, if not, it's the top emerald producer in the world of the most valuable emeralds. And Gemfields had brought you in to conduct research on how to operate in that region. And this is particularly interesting given your conflict background, because as you know better than anyone, and probably a lot of our listeners will know, Colombia's had one of, if not the longest running conflicts on the planet. 
And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's an interesting mix of a conflict zone and a very, very popular mining zone. So you sound like you maybe were perhaps uniquely suited for managing that environment. Colombia is a, an amazing country. And I think the opportunities there for mining countries, mining companies, sorry, are phenomenal. Um, but as you say, I mean, it's a, a country that, you know, has been, uh, you know, has endured, uh, you know, generations of conflict. Um, again, not unlike Afghanistan. Um, yeah, to be clear, like, you know, the you know, Gemfields is an awesome company. I wasn't brought in to do research per se. It was more to advise them uh, and help them help them think here's you know help them think through some of the really complex challenges that um, you know that they were facing as an investor a, a, a UK based AIM listed uh, company um, you know responsive to all of the you know compliance laws and regulations in the United Kingdom and um, yet here they were trying to you know uh, acquire this asset in in Colombia and they needed to understand. Um, in you know, as full as sense as possible, what the you know, social, political, and community risks were, and that was that was that was what uh, that was what they you know, sort of brought me in to uh, you know, to help them think through. So, how did you go about implementing that? I mean, I assume you weren't doing it from a computer in 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 London. What were the steps you took to really start to understand the, the region with which they were hoping to operate? So the process that in which we work is very much the same as uh, you know a company would engage a you know an exploration geologist. You know you you engage a, the resource company engages an exploration geologist to look. Do we have a viable asset? You know do the surveys understand the different areas of the landscape uh, you know, within the context of the area of interest? And is there is there a viable asset there for um, for for extraction? Uh, for me. As an anthropologist in this context, it was, you know, I was out there literally at the same time as their exploration um, geologist. And, you know, the two of us were, you know, even though we didn't really know each other, uh, we didn't even know that we were out there at the same time, you know, at that time. We only found out about it afterwards. But um, we were both out there working and, and uh, I was out there trying to, you know, develop a, a full understanding of the, you know, local um, you know, social, political and community risks. And... To do that, um, I used the same methods that um, that I had developed and um, and and used in in Afghanistan under under the the context of that uh, you know the deep pressure cooker of conflict. And did you build a local team there, or did you use other? Uh, I mean, colleagues from from the UK. How did how did you go about doing that? So it was the same, exactly the same process. The in terms of it was slightly refined, but absolutely right. The building of a local team, um, you know, recruiting recruiting a local team and um, training them, spending time with them to you know help them understand what my objectives were and um, you know engage them to um, help collect data and, and uh, gain entree into the into the community, so we could understand you know undertake the research to understand, uh, you know, what the full extent of these above ground non-technical risks were and, you know, how those different risks related to each other, um, you know, where the focus and attention for the company needed to be. So, you know, as an engineer uh, and as someone who has worked on a variety of mining projects in developing and some unstable countries, 
one of the biggest challenges for me with, you know, these, these above ground risks and these, um, you know, social risks is that they're very, very difficult to quantify. Um, you know, it's often a very, uh, qualitative approach and it, you know, it worked or it didn't work and you often can't see, it's very hard to measure throughout. And I think this is a common thing amongst executives in the mining industry who technically, who tend to come from technical or financial backgrounds who are used to being able to quantify progress, who are used to be able to put numbers and dollars on things. And it probably causes people to undervalue CSR work because they, it's hard to measure. Now, you have taken a lot of steps to actually take a more quantitative approach to evaluating uh, risks and to managing them. And I'd like you to talk about that for a bit, because I think that is something very unique to what you're doing at Chalkstone and something that is will be a bigger part of this industry going forward and has not gotten the attention it deserves. You know, the question that you asked earlier about how do we differentiate between you know, uh, other people who are doing CSR. I said, look, we focus in on the politics. We focus in on the politics. We focus in on, the, on, on you know, trying to understand those risks using a, you know, because th it's those politics that underpin every, everything. You know, how do, you know, that's what we're trying to get at. Now, that's the source of your, you know, for me, that is the, you know, that is the resource. That's what I am trying to, you know, get inside and mine. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, my method for, 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 for doing that, um, was developed in, you know, something I gained, I developed in, you know, taking, you know, goes back to Afghanistan, goes back to being able to work in conflict successfully, um, which is, you know, I didn't have the time to, uh, you know, do a full on ethnography in Afghanistan and I, it wasn't safe enough for me to do that anyway, because it was a full on conflict. So, um, for me, I basically, you know, uh, you know, added in a big part of my, you know, along with the ethnographic process, where a typical anthropologist would um, spend, you know, better part of, uh, you know, three to six months learning the local language. Um, I focused in on big data analysis um, and actually, you know, took myself. Uh, this was a quick journey I made, you know, in between, uh, you know, across the Atlantic. I went from Cambridge, went over to Harvard for, you know, summer school and research methods and started to understand, you know, quantitative research methods. It was, it was just the timing of, of the course that was offered over at, at Harvard and Cambridge there. And, 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 uh, and that's when I started to think, okay, well, we need to use data to help us to, you know, augment um, and, and enrich uh, the more qualitative, as you say, the more qualitative uh, narratives that we can develop and analysis that we can develop through through the ethnography and, and, and more traditional researches of that kind. So when you start working, you know, in this way, combining, um, you know, systems practices, systems thinking, big data analysis with the ethnography, you end up with... Um, for want of a better word, a product or perhaps a practice, a process that you can then explain in, you know, in ways that are um, much easier for financiers and engineers to understand. Because we're talking about um, an entire system, 
was starting to, you know, and in my case, the system isn't, um, you know, the mechanics of the, of, of, of the mind operating system. It's my system. When I, when I look to describe it, it's the social and political system of that community. So, the, and then, so when I go through it, it's, uh, you know, being able to use the big data techniques to, you know, inform, you know, inform our understanding of that system and how it, how it functions. So how are you actually collecting data here? Well, we, we blueprint the area and um, with a, a, an initial sort of rapid, as you know, by conducting an initial rapid assessment. Um, and the, the purpose of the blueprint is to, is to install um, a communications platform. We call this platform Mosaic. We developed it. I actually developed it with uh, with a group of developers, um, and, uh, and 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 it uh, you know we just launched. This is exactly what we just launched in Kenya. Um, so Mosaic is a is is an SMS based uh, platform, um, location focused. It's designed mm-hmm. to specifically fit. Um, you know the contours of the society in which we're in which we're working. Um, hence the assessment that we undertake in the beginning. This allows us to, in effect, right fit the technology. So much technology is sort of, you know, comes out of a box in a sense, and you know, you have to sort of do a lot with it to make the tool fit the fit fit its purpose. So we actually, you know. Right fit, understand our context, and then and then right fit, ta- ta- you know, tailor the tool to to its specific purposes in that area. And, and so, is this essentially an app that people can download? No, it's a it's it's at the moment it's on it's a it's a desktop. Um, you know, we're still developing different aspects of it, but you you know it, it uh, you know, we we conducted uh, conduct business using using the internet right now. Um, Although it's a closed system for us and our clients, it's not it's not out there on the web yeah. yet because it's still in development. But the um, but but in 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 practice, it's an SMS system, so it's not really an app uh, as we would recognize it on a smartphone. And the reason is simple. Um, the reason for that is you know we're aiming to improve our communications with the local populations, yep. and and you know you know in order to improve our understanding of those local populations. Um, and they don't have smartphones. Um, education right. levels are really low. Um, internet access is sometimes non-existent. So we use the um, technology that is most readily available, which is you know cell phone technology, mobile phones. Smartphones uh, aren't there, but feature phones and brick phones are. Um, so Mosaic works with smartphones and feature phones uses, as, using SMS to help to get information um, to our local constituents within the within the project area, and you know, to and and of course it enables um, local constituents to share information with us in a group environment. So um, the reason why the group environment is an important feature of Mosaic is because it encourages transparency and accountability. Right, everything is out in the open. Um, so everybody knows what everyone's saying. This is not an anonymous. So. Essentially, anyone in the affected area, in the project area, can can use this uh, this platform to ask questions, to register complaints, to to engage with the company directly. But everybody else in that area or on the platform 
also sees what everybody else is saying? That's exactly it. And it's anonymous. So people don't have any, there's no threat of, of uh, retribution. But also we, over, we use the anonymity and we use the group setting to help us overcome some of the cultural barriers that we would, that we would sometimes or oftentimes find that to differing degrees in these different societies. For example, um, in Kenya right now, when we have a, um, you know, a, a local meeting, usually the meeting will be, a public meeting will be called by the local chiefs a village chief, the area chief of that uh, location or sublocation, as they would refer to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, you know, sitting, you know, sitting underneath the tree, that's how, where they would, we, the, um, the Ekatoi, that's where they would disseminate, you know, the chief will disseminate information. But it is an information broadcasting system. There's not, within that context, there's not a lot of room for debate. And within that particular society of uh, the Turkana, there's not traditionally the, it's not traditionally the, the way for um, people to, one, contradict their elders or, and certainly not to contradict their chiefs in public. That's not to say that there isn't disagreement, but in public forum, it's very difficult to, you know, to, to, you know, contradict elders and contradict chiefs. Right. Now, by having these, by being able to, um, you know, disseminate information over an SMS platform that is anonymized, but still a group setting where they can see other people contributing to a conversation, um, people feel much more comfortable about really saying what's on their mind. Really, as one as one uh, as one chap told us when we were when when you know when we were out there launching launching Mosaic recently, he said, you know, finally, you know. The you know this is this is going to be great for us because you're going to under, you're going to start to understand all of the things that the conversations that have been hidden from the company. Yeah. So okay. So this is really giving a voice to the people who typically wouldn't be involved in the decision making process or might not, you know, have or groups or subgroups of people that aren't typically recognized. Now, would you say that's accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, and, the, um, sorry, go ahead. So, and then how does this, how does this get utilized by yourself and the company, your client to, to make better decisions or to, to, I mean, at the end of the day, to put themselves in a position so their project can be more successful. So once we start to understand, um, how people are reacting to, um, different types of operational news, what they like, what they don't like, what they can agree with, what they can't agree with, what they don't understand and what they need to understand more of. Um, Then the company can then start to, you know, deploy additional resources and from other areas. It's uh, a stakeholder engagement team. It's um, external engagement officers, depending on the, it's communications team, depending on, you know, how the company structures its outreach. Um, you know, to provide that information and then physically engage. Another big thing for us is that um, whilst we're really talking about technology, in this case, the Mosaic platform, um, I, you know, it's not, it's not our belief that all solutions are all technical. Uh, you know, we, you, we're dealing with people. There needs to be a human element. And, you know, being able to, tr- to, to you know, engage people personally face-to-face is absolutely essential in our view. So the, the SMS platform mosaic allows for people to start a conversation, register a grievance, as you pointed out, which is really, really important. 
um, but start a conversation that can then be followed up. Um, it can then, you know, if somebody says, uh, you know, wow, I mean, you know, we really need, you know, the boreholes that the company placed here are great, but we, we could do with more of them. Or um, the, conversely, the boreholes that the company started, uh, you know, we haven't seen the company in the last like six months. Are they ever going to finish constructing these boreholes? Um, we could we could really use use that for accessing you know local water resources or what have you. Mm -hmm. The um, you know the ability for people just to sort of say what they want to say you know in their own time at their own speed, not just when they're being visited formally, but you know casually as they want to say it, um, and then being able to sort of we tabulate all of that information, um, analyze it through, and um, pass the the um, analyzed product over to the company so that they can start to plan their engagements in a more um, thorough, directed, and focused way that is informed by the data, the data, of course, representing the, you know, the thoughts, views, and opinions of the local people. Okay. So what would you say is next for Chalkstone Partners? What will you be focusing on over the coming year, for example? I think the primary goal right now, as with any kind of startup, we have our, we have, um, you know, our, our main project right now is in, um, in Kenya and it's about consolidating and, um, and, and growing out, um, from that. Um, and, you know, our next project will be, um, you know, basically, uh, digitizing the first part of what we do. So if communications is the second part that's informed by, you know, that on the ground assessment, then the next part is how do we put, how do we, you know, use technology to improve the way that we can conduct that initial assessment, how okay. do we how do we improve that uh, that that initial set of processes? So that's our next challenge. But consolidating what we have right now, I think that's uh, that's our number one focus. So it's going to be a, a busy year, I would guess, going forward, and a fascinating one. You know, like I say, we just finished this launch. Um, the local population um, are just coming out of you know the company and the local population are coming out of a you know, an eight-week work stoppage, um, of, you know, July and August. Um, you know, this costs the company a lot of money. It costs the company almost $40 million, apparently. Um, and, that's before, and that's, you know, that's before anything was actually even happening. You know, the company haven't, haven't moved into full-field development. But these work stoppages are very, very expensive because they don't impact, they don't just impact the primary contractor and the operator, but they impact all of the, Operators, subcontractors, and and other advisors, um, you know, they are. It's an expensive business when the project is. It's a big risk when the project is uh, is 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 paused for, um, you know, a, a community work stoppage. Um, one of the things that the community really wanted was look, we are demanding greater access to more information. Um, we came in sort of on, on the, you know, just on the edges because we had started up in, in, in September, in, in February of this year. So we came in, we were just beautifully positioned to, you know, as, at the moment that the company concluded that, uh, you know, the, the negotiation to resolve the work stopped with the community. Um, you know, we were able to sort of basically a month later launch Mosaic. Now, here we were. Um, you know, I think we had... Uh, 
you know, a couple thousand people show up to, we had like four or five launch events and we had like, you know, two, two and a half thousand people show up and do the, you know, to our different launch events and, uh, you know, learn about Mosaic and understand what it's about and get excited about, you know, how to communicate with the company and, and how they can get more information about jobs and how they could get more information about um, what the company's, uh, you know, operational activities are going to be, how they can contribute to, um, you know, the company's, uh, you know, community development initiatives. I mean, this was transformative for, for a lot of people in that area. So we are just absolutely thrilled. And the potential cost savings if this works and if you're able to reduce these, uh, you know, these work stoppages is enormous. Well, yes, but, um, but in all fairness, um, you know, it's not, uh, we'll never be able to eliminate work stoppages. Um, and, and, you know, we can't, you know, that's, we, we don't think that that, we can, that could happen. We, we, we do think is that we can reduce them. Yeah. And, well, I mean, if it costs $40 million, even if you can reduce that by 20%, yeah. that's a, that's a pretty marginal, uh, or not marginal rather, that's a pretty meaningful, uh, advantage. Daniel Franks has written a great, uh, you know, he's a, an academic who's at the University of Queensland. He's wrote a, wrote a great prep paper about this um, in terms of how much money per week uh, a company uses. A typical um, mid-sized mining company during, you know, in exploration phase could lose as much as, say, you know, you know $50,000 a day. This oil company, at one point, um, you know, they made a calculation that it was something like... Uh, you know, a drilling team would go out um, and just, you know, if the drilling team has to turn around, uh, you know, just because of a, um, you know, a, a, a roadblock um, and they can't go out to work, that they, that costs the, that costs the company, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars just right there in one day. Yeah. So these costs mount up pretty fast. I mean, it's nothing to snuff at. And that's, that's our focus. I mean, our focus is helping companies reduce that by improving the understanding of the company um, and the community. And are you seeing companies start to wake up to that fact and be very cognizant of the risks and the, and the costs there and engage with yourself and groups like you and really trying to find a way to manage these ahead of time? You know, it was a bit of a struggle. We started, um, I mean, the Gemfields project, you remember when that was? I mean, that was you know, 2014 when we started that, just coming out of the... You know, you know, the resource sector was, uh, you know, suffering, had been suffering for a couple of years. And, you know, so people really weren't spending money. But when we, for us, we started to sort of frame it in terms of, well, if you are going to develop an asset, even in these lean times, then you really want to be really, you know, careful about your costs. You really want to manage your risks. And this is one area of risk that, Will affect your, you know, it'll affect your share price because you know this is the aspect of the reputation risk as well as the, you know, your operating costs on the ground. So this is something that, you know, for relatively a small amount of money, we have full small amount of investment. You know, we can really, you know, have a significant impact to help you to use data um, to build better relationships and communicate more effectively with uh, with your, your the people in your in your area of interest. All right, Donald, I, uh, I want to be cognizant of your time and, and, and I know you got a lot going on now. So I wanted to thank you for sitting down and talking with us today. But before we go, is there 
any comments you'd like to make to our audience or questions or requests, uh, anything you think people should know? Mm, there's so, so many things I think, but the, the main thing is, um, you know, don't assume that the local population, um, you know, work by the same rules that, uh, that you do, or even understand the same rules that, 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 you know, one would, if you were a Vancouver or a Toronto or, you know, London listed company, um, taking the time to understand how people, um, make decisions and the rules by which those decisions are made is, uh, is time exceedingly well spent. Good advice. All right. Thank you very much, Donald, and we'll talk to you soon. Jamie, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.